Good morning. If you have your Bible with you, I'd like you to join me in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Someone has said that if we discovered that we only had five minutes left to say all that we wanted to say, every phone booth, every land phone, every cell phone would be occupied by people calling other people to stammer the words, I love you. This morning we're in our final message in 1 Corinthians 13, which tells us what I love you really means. We see the prominence of love in verses 1 to 3, where Paul says no matter how eloquent you are, no matter how gifted you are, no matter how much faith you have, no matter how much you give or sacrifice, if love is not the major contribution of your life, you make no contribution. Without love, verse 1 says, you say nothing. Verse 2 says, you are nothing. Verse 3 says, you gain nothing. You plus everything that's anything minus love equals zero. And then secondly, we see the properties of love in verses 4 to 7. We often think of love as a feeling. I fall in love, I fall out of love. Other people, when they say, I love you, it's really a selfish thing. Because when they say, I love you, they really mean, I love me and I want you. In verses 4 to 7, Paul describes love with 15 characteristics, 15 snapshots, and we noted that in the Greek, they're all verbs. It's always action. And Paul's point is that this should be your bio. Without these characteristics in your life, you are zero. Sometimes we're faced with that tough assignment of kind of describing ourselves in a paragraph. If you were going to write down a description of yourself and you had to say, here's how my friends and family would describe me, could you say, well, I'm patient, I'm kind, I'm not jealous, I don't brag, I'm not arrogant, I'm not rude, I'm not selfish, I'm not provoked. I don't keep lists of wrongs done against me. That's love. And then last week we began to look at the third point, and that is the permanence of love in verses 8 to 12. And it's summarized in the very first three words love never fails. A funeral service was being held for a woman who had just passed away. And at the end of the service, the pallbearers were carrying the casket out of the chapel when they accidentally hit the wall and jarred the, the casket. And they almost dropped it when to their utter shock they heard some faint voice inside. So they set the casket down and they opened it. And lo and behold, the woman was alive. She lived ten more years and she died. 
A ceremony was held for her in the same chapel, and at the end of the funeral, the same pallbearers were carrying her out again. And her husband yelled, Watch the wall! Love never fails. Humorist Sam Levinson said, Love at first sight is easy to understand. It's when two people have been looking at each other for years that it becomes a miracle. Well, that's the miracle of God's love in us. It never stops. It never gives up. It never quits. Love never fails. And we said that word fails means to fall to the ground. Love never falls to the ground because God will never fall to the ground. And God is love. And then in contrast to love, which never falls to the ground, Paul tells us three things about spiritual gifts in verses 8 to 12. And we looked at this in detail last time, but I want to revisit them to show you a few more points. First of all, spiritual gifts are temporary in verse 8. He says, love never fails, but if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, it will be done away. His point is that gifts are temporal. Love is eternal. But I want you to notice something in verse 8. He could have said, prophecy and tongues and knowledge will be done away with. But instead, he uses two different Greek words to describe their demise. He says, prophecy will be done away and knowledge will be done away. That's the Greek word katargeo, which means to be abolished. Tongues will cease. That's a different Greek word. It's the Greek word paeo, which means to stop. It's used 15 times in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. All 15 times, it means a complete and final stop. So all of these will end, but tongues will end at a different time and in a different way than the gift of prophecy and the gift of knowledge. Now, let me give you, hang on, let me give you a little Greek lesson to help you understand this. There are three voices in Greek. If I want to say, I hit you, I use the active voice. If I want to say, you hit me, I use the passive voice. If I want to say, I hit myself. I use the middle voice. Prophecy and knowledge will be done away. That's in the passive voice. Something is going to stop them. When he says tongues will cease, that's in the middle voice. It's going to stop itself. It's going to stop on its own. Now, having said that, look at verse 9. He says, for we know in part, that's knowledge, and we prophesy in part, that's prophecy, but when the perfect comes, the partial will be done 
away. Now, what's going to do away with knowledge and prophecy? The perfect. Why doesn't he mention tongues in verse 9? Because the perfect is not going to do away with tongues. Tongues will already have stopped before the perfect comes. You say, well, when does tongues cease? Well, let me give you my answer to that question. I think that tongues ceased in the first century. I think that tongues ceased with the apostolic age. There are other gifts that ceased at that time. One of them is the gift of apostle. There are no apostles today. To be an apostle, you had to be an eyewitness of Jesus' resurrection, and nobody qualifies today. So there were certain gifts that ended with the apostolic age, one of them being the gift of apostle, and I think one of those as well was this gift of tongues. Let me give you two quick reasons for that. And I'm, I'm saying quick because chapter 14 deals with the whole subject of tongues, so we're, I'm not going to run away from this. We're dealing with this as we go into chapter 14, but I want to just touch on two reasons why I say that. One is the purpose. What's the purpose of tongues? Well, let me give you a preview. Look at chapter 14 and verse 22. He says, so then tongues are for a sign. Tongues are a sign. Now, you know where Snake Hill is? The top of Snake Hill has a little sign. It looks like a snake. It's like this. It's letting you know the road is going to be windy. I need that sign at the top of Snake Hill. I no longer need that sign when I get to the bottom of Snake Hill. Why? Because the road straightens out. I don't need the sign anymore. A sign is to tell you something at a certain time for a certain purpose. The gift of tongues is a sign. Who's it assigned to? Look at verse 22 again. So then tongues are a sign not to those who believe, but to unbelievers. Tongues is a sign to unbelievers. Now when we read that, we think of all the unbelievers out there. But which unbelievers are he, is he talking about? Well, back up to verse 21. He says, in the law it is written, and he quotes from Isaiah 28.11, by men of strange tongues and by the lips of strangers, I will speak to this people, and even so, they will not listen to me. Who are the unbelievers? This people. Who is this people in verse 21? Well, that's Israel. You see, the gift of tongues was given as a sign to Israel. God spoke to Israel in their language, and they didn't listen. So God said, all right, if you're not going to listen in your language, I'm going to talk in other languages that you can't even understand. Tongues is a sign to Israel that God was no longer speaking to them. God had now moved away from Israel to the Gentiles. That's the sign of tongues. And when did that happen? When was that sign necessary? That sign was necessary in the first century when God began the church and was saying to Israel, this is the sign to you. This people speaking in languages you don't even understand that God is moving away from you to the Gentiles. 
And then secondly, not only the purpose tells us that, but the pattern tells us that. When you look at the pattern in the history of the church, tongues have ceased. In fact, that really began, I think, in the New Testament. Did you know that tongues is only mentioned in two books in the New Testament? It's mentioned in the book of Acts, and it's mentioned here in 1 Corinthians. Paul wrote at least 12 other letters, and he never mentions the gift of tongues. Peter never mentions it. James never mentions it. John never mentions it. Jude never mentions it. We see even in the New Testament an emphasis on it in Acts, which is the early history of the church, and in 1 Corinthians, written about 56 A.D., which is early in the writing of the New Testament. And then we also see that pattern in history, that it ceased. If you look at the history of the church, you'll see mention of tongues in the first century. After that, you can't find mention of the book of the gift of tongues throughout history. In fact, the first claim of the revival of tongues in the evangelical church since the apostolic age was in 1901. So it was silent for 1,800 years. And it doesn't say in 1 Corinthians 13.8, tongues will cease and then jumpstart itself. So I look at the purpose of tongues. It was a sign to Israel in the first century that God was starting something new and leaving them out of that. And I see the pattern that it has not been there in the history of the church. It has ceased. It has hid itself. Middle voice. Now having said that, we're going to look at this in chapter 14 in detail, and I want to delve deeper into it and have more explanation for it. There are a lot of people today, well-meaning people, people that I love that claim to have this gift. There are people in this congregation that do. My position is that what people today are calling tongues is not actually the tongues of the New Testament. In fact, let me say this as a disclaimer. I have far less problem with their tongues that I can't understand than some Christians' tongues that I can't understand. I'll leave it there. So gifts will be done away with. They are temporary. Gifts are for time. Love is forever. Secondly, gifts are partial. Look at verse 9. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. We only have part of the picture. I don't have the whole picture. I don't know everything. I don't understand everything. I can't answer every question you ask me. My favorite answer is I don't know. You know why? Because I don't know. We know in part. God has not revealed the whole picture to us. But verse 10 says, but when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. We said that word perfect is a word that means complete. When the complete comes, the partial will be done away with. And we went into this in detail last time, so if you weren't here, get the tape or CD or... I don't think we do DVDs. I don't, I'm not pretty enough for that. What's the complete? Some people say it's the Bible. It's the complete canon of Scripture. That doesn't fit because verse 12 says, 
when the perfect comes, when the complete comes, we will see face to face and we will know fully as we are fully known. And that isn't happening today. Some other people say, well, it's Jesus. That's a good answer. But the word perfect is neuter and not masculine. It's not the perfect one. It's the perfect thing. And so my position is that the complete is love. That's what he's talking about in this chapter. That's what he's contrasting spiritual gifts with. When love is complete, we will no longer need the partial things like spiritual gifts, which are really given to build us up in what? In love. And then spiritual gifts, thirdly, are elementary in verse 11. When I was a child, I used to speak like a child, think like a child, reason like a child. When I became a man, I did away with childish things. How many of you had matchbox cars? Come on, come on. How many of you still play with them? Ah, okay. I've got some in my closet, and my grandkids come, they, they haul them out and, and play with them. They're, they're unbreakable, but they're elementary. They're elementary. When we grow to maturity, we put away those childish things. And what are the childish things in this context? Childish things are the spiritual gifts. What is the mature thing? What is the manly thing? It's love. So gifts are temporary. Love is eternal. Gifts are partial. Love is complete. Gifts are elementary. Love is mature. And then Paul summarizes it in verse 12. And notice what he says here. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. The Corinthians were familiar with mirrors because they were made in the city of Corinth. They had a, a certain content of the sand there that was conducive to making quality mirrors, but what they called quality by our standards was very, very crude. had many imperfections, and so the image was discernible, but it was cloudy, it was vague, it was limited. It's like you looking through your side view mirror on a rainy day and what's that little notation say on the bottom of that mirror it says things are closer than they seem we don't see exactly we're limited on what we can see in that capacity and Paul says that's the way we see now it's dim it's fuzzy but when the complete comes when love is completed and when will love be completed it'll be completed in the presence of Jesus Christ when that happens, he says, we will see face to face. And then he says at the end of verse 12, Now I know in part, but then I will know fully, just as I also have been fully known. Now I know in part. Paul prays for us in Ephesians 3.18, and he prays that we may be able to comprehend what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge. Isn't that an interesting prayer? I pray that you'll know the love of Christ which can't be known. But here he says, even though we know in part now, there's coming a day when we will know fully as we have been fully 
No. You realize that God knows you better than you know yourself? He knows you perfectly. He knows everything about you. And I find this to be an awesome statement in Scripture because he says, in that day, you will know God the way God knows you. Wow. You know, I hear people say, there are several questions I can't wait to ask the Lord when I get there. Well, you better ask them now. Because when you get there, you will know. 1 John 3.2 says, when Jesus appears, we will be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. There's coming a day when there will be no more books, no more classes, no more studying, no more sermons. Thank you. You will know it all. So he says, now we see in a mirror dimly. That's prophecy. But then face to face. Now we know in part, that's the gift of knowledge, then we will know fully. Gifts are temporary, they're partial, they're, they're elementary, in contrast, love is permanent. So we've seen the prominence of love, the properties of love, the permanence of love, and then fourthly and finally, he tells us the preeminence of love in verse 13. But now abide these three, faith, hope, love. But the greatest of these is love. If we were going to give out the Heisman Trophy of spiritual virtues and invite the three finalists, here they are. Faith, hope, love. The envelope, please. The greatest of these is love. In fact, love really encompasses the other two because back in verse 7, we're told that love believes all things, and love hopes all things. Now, faith is no lightweight virtue. You can't live without it. In fact, without faith, you are still dead in your sins. Imagine what your life would be like without faith. Hebrews 11.6 says, without faith, it's impossible to please God. Ephesians 2.8 says, that you are saved through faith. Galatians 3.26 says, you are children of God by faith. Romans 3.28 says, you are justified by faith. Romans 4.9 says, faith is credited to you as righteousness. Now the other day, Joel Nykirk gave me this uh, Popeye's chicken card. It says on it that it's good for a free value meal. It includes one side and a regular soft drink. Only good in Cape Girardeau and Poplar Bluff. And it's not good with any other coupon. You see, I'll get to take this down to Popeye's and they will credit me with a value meal. You know what your faith gets? Your faith 
is credited with the righteousness of Jesus. That's what you get because of faith. That's pretty amazing. Hebrews 11.1 says, Faith is the substance of things hoped for. It's the evidence of things not seen. Faith makes future things and unseen things a present reality. Amazing virtue. Habakkuk 2.4 says, The just shall live by faith. And that's repeated three times in the New Testament. We can't live without it. 1 John 5.4 says, What is the victory that overcomes the world? It's our faith. But you know, as valuable as faith is, it's temporary. Because 2 Corinthians 5.7 says, We walk by faith, not by sight. When we see Him face to face, and when we know Him the way He knows us, we won't need faith anymore. Hope is a great virtue as well. Now, unfortunately, we often think of hope as sort of just a pumped-up optimism. Kind of like the, the, the fisherman who was asked how the fishing was going, and he said, oh, it's better. Last week, I fished for four hours and caught nothing. Yesterday, I got the same result in only three hours. Fishermen tend to be optimistic. Well, biblical hope is not just optimism. Biblical hope is not just positive thinking. Biblical hope is a confident expectation. Hebrews 6.19 says, Hope is the anchor of our soul. And 1 Peter 1.3 says, We have been saved into a living hope. Our hope is just as alive as Jesus is. Ephesians 2.12 says there was a time when we had no hope and we were without God in the world. There was a time when you had no confidence in tomorrow. There was a time when you had no promises for the future. You had no anchor. You were drifting. You were being tossed against the rocks of life. I went through Scripture this week and picked out some of the things we hope in. Ephesians 1.18 says we have the hope of His calling. Colossians 1.23, the hope of the Gospel. 1 Thessalonians 5.8, the hope of salvation. Titus 1.2, the hope of eternal life. Galatians 5.5, the hope of righteousness. Colossians 1.5 says it this way, you have hope laid up for you in heaven. Psalm 38.15 says, We hope in the Lord who is, according to Romans 15.13, the God of hope. And Colossians 1.27 says, Christ in you is the hope of glory. Psalm 130.5 says, God's Word brings us hope. Romans 5.4 says that trials bring us hope. Psalm 147.11 tells us that God's mercy brings us hope. 1 Thessalonians 2.19 tells us that the salvation and growth of others around us that we've had an impact on brings us hope. We are to continually hope, Psalm 7.14. We are to rejoice in hope, 
Romans 5.2. We are to abound in hope. Romans 15.13. We are to wear hope the way a soldier wears his helmet. 1 Thessalonians 5.8. We are to be always ready to give a reason for the hope that is in us. 1 Peter 3.15. We are to focus on the blessed hope and the appearing of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Titus 2.13. And 1 John 3.9 says, when we have our hope fixed on Him, it purifies us. But you know what? Romans 8.24 says, hope that is seen is not hope. So when we see Him face to face, and when we know Him the way He knows us, we won't need hope anymore. Now what about love? 1 Peter 1.8 says, Whom having not seen, we love. And when we see Him face to face, and when we know Him the way He knows us, love will not be ending. Love will just really be beginning because that will be the completion of love from our side for the very first time. Love will be perfected in us and we will love throughout eternity. Faith will come to an end because faith will be actualized. Hope will come to an end because hope will be realized. But love will never come to an end. Now abide. Faith, hope, love. Outstanding virtues. Without them, you would be lost. But as amazing as these qualities are, love is the greatest. Love shines far above the other two. Does your Bible say God is faith? Does your Bible say God is hope? No. Your Bible says God is love. Because love is as eternal as God is. And that's why chapter 14 and verse 1 begins, pursue love. Go after love. Have a passion for love because it is the greatest thing. An old legend has it that in his old age, the Apostle John was so weak that he had to be carried into the church meetings. And at the end of the meeting each week, somebody would come over and help him to stand up in order to give a word of exhortation. And he would invariably repeat the same words week after week. And those words were, little children love one another. The Christians grew kind of weary of hearing the same words all the time from John. And so finally, they asked him why he kept saying, love one another. And John's response was, because it's enough. And that's the message of 1 Corinthians 13. If you get love, you've got it. If you get love, it's enough. I'm going to have the praise team come back because I want to...